let me welcome you all to the PID webinar. Hear me? We are ready to go. Uh, today, we'll take up uh, a topic that's close to everybody's heart. So let's look at it. The whole world is talking about financial, or dig sorry, digital, the digital economy. We are all talking about the digital economy. We are all living in a digital world. So let me tell you that we are going to talk about the digital economy today. And the digital economy is, uh, um, you know, and as well as financial empowerment. So let's see what our experts have to say about the digital economy. I'm told the digital promise is a big promise for Pakistan. We are going to make a digital economy from our uh, country. I've been told that for the last 30 years that we'll have 500 billion, 200 billion, God knows how many billion of exports. I'm still waiting, I'm not getting younger, so I hope it'll happen in my lifetime. But uh, the promise is there, we all hear of startups, we all hear that good things are going to happen, but yet I can't transfer money from my bank account to Jazz. Yet I can't open an online account. Yet I try to get a credit card online, I can't get it. So I don't know where the promise of digital is. Yet when I move a file in the secretariat, they, told, they tell me there is an e, e, whatever platform there. Then we go through the e-platform about five um, levels. Then I'm told that the paper file has to move. So I don't know what the promise of the digital economy is. But let me say this webinar has been organized by Maliha um, uh, Bangash. So I have to give a big warm clap to Maliha Bangash and uh, you know, see what she has to say. And I'll ask her to initiate the questioning and the panel discussion. So Maliha Bangash, I hope you are there to take over very soon. But let me introduce the panel. We have Mr. Azaz Hussain, assist, um, the CEO of Systems Limited, a very, um, one of the largest firms, I guess, of uh, uh, digital or technology or computers, which has been around for a long time and which has, uh, lives in uh, New York as well as Pakistan and is just in the stock exchange. Then we have Mr. Zuhair Khalik, a well-known technology person who has been the CEO of Mobilink and who is now engaged in startups and incubating, has been in London as a major telecom uh, consultant and an operator. So he knows his business very well. Then we have Mr. Farid Khan, who's the CEO of Finca, which is an important financial technology company. So I welcome all of you, and I hope that you will enlighten us, give us a very good overview of what the digital economy is all about. But I must introduce Maliha Bangash, who is um, a major collab senior fellow at PIDE and a major collaborator with us and uh, herself being in uh, uh, the competition commission in many places and Maliha was kind enough to help us arrange this panel. So Maliha, will you come over and kick off the panel please? Yes, thank you. Uh, good evening everyone, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for joining. Uh, special thanks for our uh, esteemed uh, speakers who uh, we're going to learn a lot from and benefit from today. 
thank you, uh, Nadim, for the very kind introduction. Uh, it's all because of your vision and because you wanted something like this to happen, that today we're all together and discussing this. So really thrilled to have all of you here. And uh, I, the, since the introductions have been done, I don't want to uh, take further time. I just uh, want to start uh, today's session and chat, um, perhaps with Mr. Fareed Khan. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll pose the initial questions to him. Uh, Fareed, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I just wanted to start uh, with, I'm going to pose a, a few questions uh, to you, and then I'll allow you to take it forward based on that. And uh, please feel free to speak on any other uh, topics that or, or to add to these questions as you deem appropriate. So firstly, um, I wanted to ask you that, could you please um, elaborate on what exactly digital banking is? We hear, hear a lot about it. And the way it is being practiced here is, is, it, is that really digital banking? For most, most of us, we don't know that. And if you could elaborate, please. And also, uh, what digital models are, um, uh, you know, are being pursued uh, in financial institutions like yours in, in Pakistan, like uh, also, the, the second question to you would be that, uh, could you let us know, enlighten us a little bit about the digital divide, because we hear a lot about it in Pakistan, you know, those the has and the has not in terms of the digital technology. Also, um, you have a lot of uh, experience internationally and, and locally in the capital market uh, and otherwise. So from your personal experience uh, and from your professional experience through Finca uh, Bank and, and in other uh, sort of Finca's uh, um, own global experience, what would you say uh, would be uh, the best practices that we can bring uh, to Pakistan, uh, to our sort of economy, uh, so as to enable uh, financial inclusion through digital means? So that would be interesting for us to know. And then finally, the last question to you would be, uh, really, we'd like to know your thoughts, uh, you know, regarding the regulatory environment. We talk about a lot of challenges, and one of the challenges uh, that we hear time and again is our regulatory challenges. So, what do you think of the regulatory environment in Pakistan? And uh, you know, which regulatory regime, in your opinion, uh, would be a good one uh, to emulate for us here in our, uh, in, you know, business environment? and uh, any suggestions uh, that you may have uh, to, the, uh, to, the regulation, uh, to, to the regulators and for regulations in our environment. So uh, over to you now, thank you. Thank you, Malia. Um, and once again, thank you so much for uh, providing me this opportunity. Um, I think uh, just to start with the very first one and um, uh, I understand that uh, you have thrown a lot at my way, so I'll just try to uh, maybe cherry pick on a, on a few important uh, uh, you know topics here, so as to uh, consume my time more judicially. Uh, you know, digital bank and internet banking have often been used interchangeably uh, in our part of the world, and um, uh, the concept has uh, evolved over a period of time. Now, what we talk uh, of a digital bank now is um, a bank which has tried to move most of its services away from its brick and mortar structure uh, and onto the Ethernet um, 
on an whether it's on the internet or whether it's on an application on your phone or your uh, tablet. Uh, so basically, banking uh, on the go that that uh, you can do. And uh, there is a wide spectrum of financial institutions who offer uh, services um, on this platform. Uh, and that's where the second part of your question comes in, which is the different approaches that the banks are taking uh, on this side. And the main concept of uh, digital bank basically emanated from the fact that uh, there was a big push towards uh, uh, increasing financial inclusion, uh, providing uh, uh, customization of services to uh, the users as well as to uh, for the banks as well to reduce the cost of providing these services so that you know the brick and mortar structure over a period of time had become a drag and it was not allowing uh, uh, banks to fulfill their promise so with the advent of uh, 3g and 4g technology there was a push uh, to utilize the faster speed available uh, of the internet and to allow uh, users to uh, conduct banking services uh, over the internet. And so, you know, you had your internet banking that was born and over a period of time, uh, it sort of uh, evolved into uh, a digital banking. And we have some very good examples uh, globally of uh, digital banks. Um, uh, you have DBS, uh, in, in the UK, you have a Sterling Bank, even in emerging markets uh, in, in South Africa, you have Zuzu and Time Bank, uh, Paytm and Digibank in India, for example. Uh, and the models that these banks are working on are a full scale model, which is a fully digital retail bank. Uh, so this is the bank which provides uh, uh, everything. It, it has the software, uh, the, the hardware, it provides a full suite of services, and it's trying to cater to uh, you know, every type of customer, whether you're a borrower or a depositor, Know, every kind of service is available. And then you have some uh, restricted players which uh, primarily use certain parts of uh, these services, uh, which are normally called the marketplace uh, banks. Um, there they provide you convenience of uh, shopping or uh, they act as a, a broker or an aggregator. Um, you know, Alipay is a good example of that. Uh, you know, they provide you uh, a service of uh, payments and uh, allow you to uh, transact uh, or uh, do shopping uh, for retailers as well as for uh, wholesalers. And the third model is the uh, a more skeletal one, which is a banking as a service, where uh, uh, you just simply provide a payment service, or you simply provide a deposit service, or you act as a third-party agent uh, for somebody. You don't own the software. You just provide a platform. People just plug in, and they provide. Uh, different kind of services using your their, your license and your platform and they access your clients. So these are the different uh, you know spectrums of uh, 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 or approaches of a digital bank that are uh, uh, used globally. Uh, each model has its own unique uh, characteristics, pros and cons. Uh, each uh, depends on what kind of regulatory environment you are working with, and what is your appetite, uh, what kind of customers you are trying to serve with. And when we talk about the digital promise, uh, what it wanted to do and what it couldn't achieve, I think uh, uh, you know, we have to see what these different models have achieved. For example, when specifically we talk about uh, uh, emerging economies or a country like Pakistan, uh, there has been uh, a growing digital divide where 
uh, people uh, who have access to latest gadgetry or access to internet have been able to transform part of their lives, transform part of their uh, you know, uh, financial needs uh, through the use of these digital platforms. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a vast majority of population which unfortunately has not been able uh, to climb on this bandwagon. Uh, they do not have the means, uh, whether it's the hardware, which is expensive, or uh, they live in areas where unfortunately you don't have high speed internet or 3G, 4G services available. So they are unfortunately not able to take advantage of it. Also, uh, using these kind of services obviously uh, requires that you have some sort of uh, financial literacy. Um, you need to understand uh, the language. I mean, most of these softwares are in English. So if you are unable to converse in English or understand the menus, you are not tech savvy, you are unable to take full advantage of these things. So over a period of time, we have seen that um, uh, some part of our population has actively embraced this change, whereas a large part is still uh, you know, trying to uh, understand this uh, phenomenon. And this is a, a great tragedy because uh, the internet was supposed to be a great equalizer. It was supposed to be a platform on which anybody can ride on. But unfortunately, um, uh, in third world and especially in Pakistan, uh, we have not seen a large number of players who are sensitive to the needs and demands of this public. And they have unfortunately not been able to customize their offering or their products, uh, which can be used by the masses. So services here, they are for elites and they are for the upper strata of the society, high net worth individuals or you know, people who have a certain uh, social profile. And that's where I think uh, we need to catch up with the rest of the world. Uh, we have seen again, I've uh, given you examples like in Kenya and South Africa, countries which have similar you know, uh, profile of population as ours, but uh, they have made huge strides uh, in this area. Or, you know, having this platform, uh, it uh, can provide governments the much needed space through which they can intervene directly and NGOs that can intervene directly uh, to provide uh, support and services uh, to a large part of the population. Uh, a good example is the uh, Benazir Income Support Program or the SAS program that uh, is now called. During COVID crisis, uh, utilizing uh, the, the branchless banking, uh, mobile wallets, uh, uh, you know, using cell phones, uh, SMS services, people were able to open bank accounts and were you know, able to get uh, support from the government. And uh, you know, this one example tells us that if this service were widespread and prevalent, it can have a huge impact on our society, not only in the financial field, but also in medicine and a lot of other areas, education, where um, you know it can help change lives of people who are otherwise not able to access such services. Obviously, problems and I'm moving quickly through your series of questions. Um, uh, the issues that we are facing uh, in our part of the world are uh, many, as some of which I've already explained. Technology barrier is one. Uh, language barriers um, uh, are, are severe. Value proposition is low significantly. I mean, we are still seeing uh, clients who are or, uh, people who are uh, unable to utilize these services effectively because they are, you know, uh, they, they have this phobia of, uh, you know, uh, doing in, uh, interactions with the bank uh, on, on the internet. Costs are very high. Uh, in fact, uh, it's uh, ridiculous that uh, uh, the, uh, in a lot of time, the 
uh, value proposition actually gives uh, preference to cash transactions. So if I go to a bank branch today, take out cash and deposit it into someone else's account, there is no charge for it. But I want to transfer money electronically from my cell phone and deposit it to someone else's account. I am charged a percentage of the funds, which can be as high as up to 2,500 rupees per transaction. So why would I do that? I mean, these kind of things are uh, actually, you know, they're working against uh, the uh, uh, adoption of such technologies. They are actually giving impetus to the to the cash economy, and that's where you know, we need uh, support from the, the regulator and the government to ensure that there's a push being made uh, to to make people use these uh, channels instead of uh, cash. And we have a huge cash economy. To wean people out of it would require uh, a, a serious holistic approach. Simply presenting products is not going to do that. And that's where you know uh, we come to the last part of your question, which is uh, the regulatory input uh, or the regulatory push that is required. Um, as I said, there has to be incentive uh, to go to digital, both for the customers as well as for for the uh, institutions. Some of these could be uh, you know tax related, some of which could be documentation related, some of which could be cost related, as I have uh, mentioned before. Interlinking of platforms now. We are living uh, in, in Pakistan in a world where each bank has created its own platform. Um, so if I'm with bank A, my platform doesn't talk to, plan, uh, to bank B, which is a huge uh, issue. Uh, and look at what we have done with the ATM network. You know, the entire country's ATM network is linked. So if we have these linkages with the entire banking system, you know, it could revolutionize this, this uh, process. So just like we have linked the ATM network, you know, there is a need to link uh, these platforms also uh, through an aggregator who can uh, function as a middleman. Then we have the anti-money laundering and uh, you know uh, uh, regulations which are prohibiting people from opening uh, remote accounts. Now I'm all for uh, the AML CFT. Uh, it is a requirement of our times, but there has to be a threshold and a limit. It should not uh, you know desist people. It should not push people away. Uh, up to a certain level, whether it's $400 or $500, people should be allowed to open digital accounts and be able to transact through it. Uh, you know, this threshold should be determined by the, the, the central bank, but it could be a huge uh, booster. And uh, I would say consumer protection. People are scared of using digital platforms because they feel that their money would be stolen. Uh, money, once it uh, goes out, you know, they will not be able to trace it. So proper consumer protection, customer protection regulations to ensure, uh, like in UK, you have a direct debit guarantee. If uh, someone uh, you know, erroneously debits your account, you are protected by that guarantee. So similar things would help uh, customers um, uh, to you know, it will build their confidence. And once they start using it and they get hooked onto it, you know, I don't think that they will look back. So thank you so much. I hope I have answered all of your questions. Thank you, Farid. Yes, you've answered, um, uh, you know, in detail, and thank you for that. I think it's very enriching your thoughts, and I think they're very useful. And I hope people out there are are listening to this, and we can translate this into actual actions. These were great recommendations. And with that, I'll come to our next speaker, Mr. Zuhair Khalik. Uh, thank you so much, Zuhair, for uh, for joining us. Uh, we're very thrilled again to have you here. Um, for you also, I, I have a series of questions, and of course, feel free to speak on any other topics that you would like. But uh, broadly speaking, 
uh, our questions to you are that uh, you know where you have the most amazing global experience in telecom and in um, in, uh, uh, in technology and you've been uh, you know is associated with international um, as well as local uh, with the ceo of mobilinks local uh, companies uh, in the technology field so really drawing from uh, all these experiences that you have um, uh, we would like you to a little bit uh, sort of make us understand what digital technology is and how we can benefit from it as in uh, you know what would its manifestations be and what would its significance be uh, in your and is and and can be in your opinion uh, since you have all this experience abroad also um, we'd also like to know about your insights a little bit of your insights on your um, around your global uh, professional journey I, i've had the good fortune of hearing you at another webinar and, and it's very inspiring what you've done and also with regards to how uh, you know in your journey you have uh, you know seen and understood digital financial empowerment and how that can be sort of uh, you know shared with the with the audiences and with the policy makers and and, uh, in, and also some of the experiences that you've had setting up the National Incubation Center, leading uh, the startup uh, team up. Uh, you're the uh, founder and the, and the partner in, in team up. So what have your experiences be that, been that would be very interesting for our audience. Um, also drawing from your uh, current role as the Prime Minister's, you're a member of the Prime Minister's Task Force. Uh, on IT and telecom, so uh, there must be uh, you know a lot that you are contributing, and so we want to learn from you and hear you on the policy side. What would your recommendations be? How can the policy uh, gaps or problems be addressed? And uh, finally, um, which is linked to all of your experiences, and uh, what are, do you think that if we really have to grow? Uh, the digital economy and uh, you know create that financial empowerment are we equipped for it in terms of perhaps the uh, the level of uh, skilled human capital do we have those skill levels and uh, the other question that comes to mind is the funding i mean you're involved with the startup world and and the innovation center and so do we have angel funding vcs uh, which can enable uh, such so over to you now Thank you very much, Maria, and thank you for having me on this uh, show. Um, I think there's a, an urgent need for the discussion we're having right now because we keep saying a lot of things and yet there is so much more that needs to be done. Uh, and as Farid very rightly pointed out, there is a digital divide in the country at this point in time. But let me also give you the positive side of it, the good news, if you will. Uh, you know, we have a population of roughly about 220 million people in this country. 167 million of those people have access to a mobile phone today. That is roughly about two and a half to three times the population of either France, Germany, or the UK. So we're already talking a lot of people who are actually connected. Now, again, out of that, maybe about 82 million people are today uh, the, using 3G or 4G, which implies that they have access to a smartphone. Um, so again, about just over a third of our population is using that as well. 
so, so that's the good news. And I think it's, it bodes well for a country where we have that, those sort of numbers uh, to, to, to base on what we need to do next, which is the, the digital leap of the, the title of this program. Um, now, having said that this is all great news, there's a lot, as I said, which also needs to be done to make this go forward in some way. When we talk digital, sometimes all we're thinking of is, oh, I've taken a, a digital image or a photo of my ID card, for example, and I'm, I'm done. That means I'm digital. But actually, that's just the first step. Because then where are you going to store it and what are you going to do with it in terms of utilization? And if you send it to someone else, for example, will they be able to take it in the same manner? So that leads to digitalization. And, and that's the next step if I, in my vocabulary at least. And, and what that means is that you've actually got something of a storage in the cloud or, or on a server or something. And most of your files are going down in that direction. To give you another, Example, if, if we were to be taking minutes of the meeting today, of this meeting, and somebody said, well, you know, Maliha will take them down in handwriting. She will then have them typed up by a, 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 a stenographer, and then we will send it to somebody else. And that would be the, the lowest form of digitization, if you will. Uh, but if you were to say, no, we will actually type it up while we are on air, immediately save it and email it to all the participants. We're already heading to the next stage of what I would call digitalization. When you get digital transformation, which is what we are looking for long-term in this country or hopefully in medium term, we are looking at then everybody storing that on, on, a, on, a, on a, you know, an access server or a, a cloud-based server where they can have access to it, they can actually go into it, they can amend some of the wording and, and so on. So just a, a very mundane example of what the three stages might be. Uh, and I think that's what we have to aspire to go and, and do as soon as we can, because we have a very large population. And as you mentioned, if you look at some of the other countries, even emerging markets, uh, which I've been a part of growth for, for many, many years now, I've had the good fortune to be working across the Middle East, the Levant, uh, Asia, and, and, and Asia Pacific, and so on. Uh, and there are people who have moved on uh, and they are already in that digital transformation process, whether they are at the, you know, the, the, the office or the, the home, or they're looking at the, a supermarket, or if you come down the value chain to a, in our words, a Kariana store or an SME business, they all need to be part of this phenomena as soon as they can be. Because what it does is gives them a whole new level of control over the information that they are carrying, the way they trade that information, the way they exchange that information with whether it's peer to peer, or if they are doing this with, let's say, from you know, citizen to government, or from government to citizen. And, and all of those stages have to be gone through one step at a time. Uh, and I think it's very important for us here to start looking at some of the issues that we have in holding this back at the moment. And, and I think Nadim sort of in his introductory remarks uh, alluded to some of that. And some of it is the government today does not have the capacity to operate on that level. So if you go to a ministry or a government uh, uh, office, they are still working on files. They're still, you know, the, this, there are five levels of this e-governance program that is being instituted, by the way, 15 some years ago. 
which still hasn't been adopted by all of the uh, government uh, ministries and, and offices and so on. So there has to be a very straightforward focus on getting that happening very, very quickly. Because what it does is then it enables some things like the SAS program to become wider, more easily deployed, where you have government to citizen payments and government to citizen communications entirely digital. And, and there's no reason why we can't have that because as I said, we have a very large population already connected uh, through mobile and a very large population connected on 3 and 4G. Uh, so, so I think it's a step in the right direction. We need to make sure that some of our policies, some of our focus, if you will, has to be in that direction and start making it happen. Now, there is natural resistance to this because when you are operating for in a certain way for 30, 40, 50 years, and as some of our you know, civil service, our bureaucracy, even uh, people in uh, corporates, um, you know, we get to a certain age, they're very comfortable with a certain way of doing business, whether, you know, it's punching a hole in a piece of paper and filing it. That is the way they've learned to do it. And, and to be able to receive something and then to file it in some place called the cloud may or may not be something that they're comfortable with. But that's the transition that we have to make. I'm very bullish because, again, another demographic which is very much in our favor is that 65% of our population is below the age of 30. And as opposed to you know, us who are uh, you know, at a certain age and may or may not be uh, accepting of this, these people are what I would call digital natives. So they are born into this, they are very comfortable with it. And I will even take the liberty of saying that it crosses all economic segments to an extent. Even if you go to rural areas and you talk to young people there, they are far more familiar with you know, manipulating the features on their iPhone or, or Samsung, or even if it's a low-end uh, you know, phone which uh, only offers you basic services, they are able to handle that very quickly. And our job, I think, as, as uh, people who are in this area, in this sector, our telecom uh, operators, our government, our ministries should be in the business of trying to push this towards those people and to educate those people in trying to adopt this very, very quickly. But it will only happen if we, the, the people at the policy making and in the government stage are equally, um, let's say, comfortable with the technology in, in this case. So I think that's a very important point to note. Um, when you talk about digital financial empowerment. I think Farid has referred to some of it already. But if you look at today, you look at somewhere like Kenya and you look at a, a, a product called M-Pesa. Now, I had the opportunity of driving through um, uh, Kenya uh, from Nairobi to a game reserve about four, four years ago. It was roughly 400 miles. So kind of the distance from, let's say from here to, to Lahore. And on the way, obviously, we made various stops to, to you know, buy a cold drink or a, a cup of tea. And I was quite impressed that almost every single person, nine out of 10 of those people on the, you know, you know Karyana store, they would refuse cash payments. They would say, I will take M-Pesa only, sir. Uh, and, and that was phenomenal. And that was four or five years ago. 
And we need to get to that stage very quickly. And again, there are lots of issues around that. It's not just a government issue. It's the issue of the, yes, the Central Bank of Pakistan. It is also the issue of every commercial bank in Pakistan to be able to enable that process to happen. And there's, there's so many steps that we need to be taking down there. It could take me the, you know, the rest of the evening to outline them. But if you like, I can share those later on with you. But needless to say, it's got to be a more holistic approach that we need to take. It's not just one section of our society which needs to make this happen. It's across the board. It's, and also, to an extent, it's uh, the, the telecom operators. They need to supply, uh, you know, make it easier to sign up, it's make it easier to, to use a smartphone, make it easier to, to, to pay for it, for example. But at the same time, then when you start accusing those people and pointing fingers at them, you have to look at the, some of the policies which need to change. Right now, we're in the middle of a, uh, for the last two or some years, two and a half years, we are in a very strange situation where we are at odds with the renewal of the very uh, lifeline of the operators, the spectrum, the, the licenses that they are given to operate in this country are at risk at this point in time because various people, various uh, you know, um, parties have decided to contest the, the, the pricing, the, the way it's been given. Uh, there's something, uh, the word that we use called uh, uh, technology neutrality. And, and all of those concepts are being tested right now. And, and I think we need to be able to get past them, to resolve them, to give comfort to the telecom operators that they will have a future where will, they will not be paying over the odds for the licenses that they are going to be operating and, and move forward with that. Because remember, we are a country where, uh, although we use a, uh, try and use the latest technology most of the time, and we are at 4G at this point uh, in most of the country, uh, those, that equipment, those services are imported. They're imported at dollar costs on the international market. However, when you look at what we call the ARPU, the ARPU, as we call it, the average revenue per user, we are at about a dollar and a half um, average revenue per user per month, which is shockingly low. Uh, and all credit to the mobile operators for still running businesses which are delivering every day and, and delivering at the cutting edge. But if you compare that with a, for example, a United Kingdom, we're talking 35 to $40 average revenue per user, or, or the US, which will be again, 25 to $30 per user per month. So the, the contrast is huge. So we, are, we shouldn't be then comparing the license fees that have been charged in those countries with the license fees that we try and justify in this country. And, and I think that makes it a little bit more difficult for things to roll forward in the way that they should at this point in time. Uh, we also have policy issues where we need to address them very, very quickly. For example, when uh, beyond the licensing and spectrum issues, uh, there is the issue of what is called the right of way. So when a, a telecom operator is going down and laying more optic fiber in the ground so that he can then connect his what are called base stations from one end to the other uh, to offer that fast internet service, which is we know as 4G. Um, owners of the land, and in most cases, it is government land or belongs to the Pakistan Railway or somebody else, they are treating it as a revenue opportunity. 
and, and they are therefore demanding huge amounts of money to give that right of way for the operators to actually deploy their network. And, and that holds people back as well. We, we have at the moment a, a huge opportunity because 15 years ago, uh, the telecom policy in 2004 uh, basically created two very interesting funds, one called the Universal Service Fund and one called the uh, ICT R&D Fund, today known as the technology, Ignite Technology Fund. And between them, there's hundreds of millions of dollars which are in the bank. And this is not taxpayer money. This is money contributed by the telecom operators uh, as a percentage of their annual revenues into these funds. And the funds are meant to be deployed for this very reason. They're deployed to be able to make it easy to roll out network to rural areas, to far-flung areas, or even, uh, I, I would say, I would argue beyond rural, you look at a, a city like Karachi, 25 million people, you know, urban and rural and semi-rural. And, and I would treat that as, as a, an immediate necessity or a Lahore or Faisalabad or any of these cities where this is urgently needed. And therefore we need to have a new perspective on what we charge the operators, what we try and tax them on. Coming to taxes, the telecom industry is the, the highest of taxpayers in this country today. Uh, when, you, when a person takes a scratch card and scratches a hundred rupees scratch card, 30 rupees of that goes straight to the government treasury. So the subscriber is already paid over a third, almost a third of his uh, contribution, which should have gone to the telco, actually to the government. And, and that is collected and, uh, and it's a surefire way of collecting because it's captive. You know, the, the telecom operator actually collects it on behalf of the government and deposits it in the government treasuries. Uh, so all, and, and it's by far one of the highest in the world. And, I, and I've had the opportunity to, to, to work in various parts, as you mentioned earlier, of the world. And uh, I can assure you that it is probably the highest in the world at this point in time. And we need to, again, review that and say, does that make sense when we talk about a digital Pakistan? None of those things actually add up to facilitate where we want to be. Uh, and I think that I, I've said a lot already. I will come to, uh, I've, I think I mentioned the policy challenges in these, in these um, arguments. Uh, my recent experience of the last three, some years, three and a half years of getting involved and setting up the National Incubation Center, um, which was then uh, appreciated to an extent where the government uh, came back and uh, allocated uh, four other provincial incubation centers as well, uh, clearly recognizing the, the success of what we've been trying to do. And, and the dream there was, and this is a purely a give back on my part, my co-founder Pervez Abbasi's part, is to be able to say, how can we share our experience, our knowledge, uh, and, and our, you know, our, our best practices over, learned over the years with young people trying to get into the technology business. Uh, and I think that's been an extremely rewarding, extremely um, gratifying experience on all accounts, because the people we meet on a daily basis are people between, let's say, 20 and 35 years of age. They invariably have fantastic ideas, which they, in many, many cases, and a lot of cases, they have transformed into now running businesses which are serving the people of Pakistan 
and it, it stretches across an entire spectrum, whether it's education or agri-tech or e-commerce, e-health, um, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, you name it, fintech, uh, and, and you name it, and they have an idea which they are capable of turning into a business, obviously with some of the help and input that our team gives them as well. But I think that is an extremely gratifying experience. And it is, to me, the future of Pakistan, because with the kind of population that we have, we will we'll never be able to create those jobs in the government. And in fact, it would be the wrong thing to do. Uh, most of the corporations in the country can only afford to have so many jobs that they can hire every year. So it is imperative that we as a nation are creating a base of people who are creating their own businesses and therefore creating more jobs for other people. And if it's in technology, fantastic. To me, that is the best possible outcome of what we are trying to do at this point in time. To address those two particular questions you had about skilled human capital, yes, you do at one end, but again, this is a kind of biased because uh, again, it emphasizes the digital div divide to a certain extent. So, most of these people are coming out of colleges and universities. That implies they're coming out of most of the major cities and towns and, and are able then to get, to get to the National Incubation Center and do their stuff. But when we look at our average IT skills, they are good, the people are bright, but the skill development is at the lowest level. So when we go into the international market and we talk about exporting our IT knowledge and, and working you know, the BPO process and, and so on, we end up at the lowest skill level, unfortunately, because even countries like Vietnam and Myanmar and, and the Philippines are way ahead in having trained their people to that next level of skill in IT and software development and software management and so on. And I think there's an imperative need, to, I, I've said this many times before, I think we need to declare almost a national education emergency where we are able to get together and train people and upskill them so that they are able to get the right skill level uh, contracts and jobs in the international market. Um, so that's kind of around the human skill uh, issue. When we come to access to funding, well, you know, the good news here is that in the last three and a half years, four years, where we had virtually no VC funds in this country, we now have around 15 venture capital funds in this country today. And between them, they have, I think, to the extent of we're offering, they're offering to the extent of maybe 250 to 300 million US dollars of available funding to the right startups to carry those businesses forward. Uh, and I think that's a fantastic development. We've also had some very interesting developments uh, recently after months and maybe, maybe a year or two of uh, lobbying with the SECP where they finally now recognize startups as a category within the SECP. They've also recognized the ability to, for example, award um, uh, stock option plans to these, um, you know, when startups normally start a business, they do not have this cash funding available to pay some of the brightest minds who are going to come and work for them. And traditionally in a startup, that's what you do. You allocate fun, uh, uh, share options to the best of the people so that one day when the business is successful, all of them can 
cash in, as it were, on the rewards. I think that's been addressed. Uh, uh, there are other issues which are still pending and need to be, to be resolved. There's a lot of issues around, for example, uh, with the central bank, where we, we need to be able to recognize you know, a, a young person coming out and trying to establish a bank account. Uh, it's not just the digital issues we are concerned about, it's also the regulatory issues which are holding some of this back. And I think we need to be able to resolve those. It's not rocket science, it's being done everywhere else in the world. And, and we just need to be able to say, how does it fit into our system and make it happen as quickly as possible. And all of these steps would basically free up the environment, the ecosystem to enable the growth of digital technology in this country and the realization of the, the digital Pakistan dream will be that much sooner and that much quicker. I think it's, I've spoken a lot, but I, I can go on. I'll stop for the moment. Thank you so much. That's so much for us to, to learn and to understand and to sort of uh, digest, I think, because I think uh, at least it was interesting to know that you know, so much is being contributed by, by technology um, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, how enabling it can be, yet our policies uh, and even our, some of our regulations and all make it so difficult and in fact costly, in fact, which is something Fareed also mentioned uh, for, uh, for people to use it and, for, and the, the low levels of skill was also something that I think is, is something we need to address very soon and, and the wonderful, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, opportunities that you spoke about that are avail uh, available if we can, you know, uh, get up to speed with what we have to do. So, so thanks for that. There's a lot, uh, you know, that you have told us. And I think we can talk about this another time also because there's so much to, to discuss further and work on. Uh, I'll now uh, uh, go to our next very respected and uh, accomplished speaker, Mr. Zaz Hussain. Uh, thank you so much, sir, for being here with us. It's an honor to have you as a founder um, as CEO and uh, now chairman of Systems Limited. It's so fascinating that in 1977 you started that and uh, so really you're a pioneer and, and a stalwart of, the, of this industry and we're so honored that you're here to talk to us, uh, you know, and you must have seen, you know, the entire evolution of, of the technology industry and, you know, um, um, of software itself and uh, we would really like to first of all uh, get your view and your uh, perspective on how this new normal the recent you know one year of, of uh, that we have spent almost uh, which has changed us uh, the new normal has impacted the industry and how it has maybe changed it or changed at least the trajectory it was going on so we would like to hear from you that and also, you have uh, experience and you have uh, been giving uh, uh, software and providing software solutions for businesses and enabling software business uh, solutions. So I would like to understand both here and in the USA uh, through VisionNet. So I would like to understand, we would like to understand if there are any specific solutions that have been effectively used in financial institutions and in sort of digital banks that, you know, we could use here. Uh, Fareed spoke of how the, the cost is sometimes 
um, you know, um, a deterrent for, for institutions to move in that direction and for businesses to become more effective. So perhaps that would be very useful in, in our context uh, of today's conversation. Um, also, um, you know, what in your view are still the gaps that need to be covered by our industries, uh, in specifically in the software area, which is an enabling uh, area for, for if we have to speak of financial empowerment, those gaps would be interesting to, to learn about. And finally, um, what do you think currently, uh, because you're comparing, I'm sure, uh, the business in, in the USA and how businesses are working there and how uh, Pakistani businesses are working and could you supply software to both? You know, what are their challenges in uh, adopting technology and these business enabling solutions uh, in your experience and observation? Thank you so much. Thank you, Malia, for the introduction and for your question. Um, and uh, if you allow me, I will, before I get to the questions that you have posed, I will start off by trying to answer Dr. Huck's question when he started this uh, webinar. He talked about uh, having to wait half his life for this digital Pakistan too. So I think because he's been in the, in the corridors of power for these last 50 years, uh, while I've been in the trenches of the IT journey in Pakistan for the same period, I think it's important for him and for the rest of the audience to understand what this journey has been. Uh, I believe that uh, if you want to get somewhere, you must know where you are and where you're coming from. So let me first answer that question, and then I'll come back to some of the issues that you've raised. Um, I started, I've been in this industry for 49 years. It'll be 50 years next year. So amongst the earlier people who were in this profession, and I started when this technology was banned in Pakistan. There was an official ban for the import of computers or any related technology. And I spent my first 11, 12 years under this ban, still trying to create a, a journey towards a digital Pakistan. And I think to some extent we exceeded, succeeded. Uh, this ban continued till 1982, uh, later part of 1982. And the only reason we could start a company uh, in IT was that we got hold of an old computer which Wapda had thrown out and we put it together and we started a company around it and started serve, of, uh, offering services uh, on that old machine. Um, and then applied to import one and it took us four years. The interesting thing is that during those, not four, but six years, two years before we applied and the four years while we were waiting, the government had proudly stated that other than allowing a computer for the Pakistan Air Force and one for the Pakistan Army, nobody had been allowed to import one. Very proudly, and they said that, you know, this is how effective our control is over this technology. So, you know, that's the background that we come from. And um, unfortunately, when the government uh, took the ban out because of the world's reaction to our nuclear plans, immediately, literally a month before they did, after they did that, the US and the EU put a ban on export of information technology equipment to Pakistan. I'm talking of 82, 83. 
And that continued for another two, three years. So that was the availability uh, while the whole world was uh, sort of uh, getting onto this digital journey, we had been kept out of it. And then when it did start coming in, it was initially very expensive. I remember we used to hold a, a competition, a sort of a national game uh, where people participated from all over Pakistan. And uh, people wanted to, as a first prize, the team of three, they wanted to get a desktop computer each. And I couldn't give it to them because the desktop computer cost three times more than a car did. A car cost at that time, uh, a Suzuki, uh, small Suzuki cost 53,000 and a basic desktop with very low performance cost 150,000 rupees. So, you know, it was very expensive. So it was still kept out of uh, everybody's reach. Um, it started getting cheaper, but then the it's not just computers, as Mr. Zuhair Khalik has said, it's a whole holistic thing that you've got to not only have computers or the ability to use them, you must also have communication. So at that time, the uh, predecessor to PTCL, the PTNT, had a stranglehold on communication. They said that data communication is something which we are not going to allow anybody to do because it might erode our voice traffic and there'll be great traffic and this, that, and the other, and they won't allow it. It's only in, in, in 99 or early 2000 that the Ministry of IT came up and uh, PTNT came under that rather than being in the, the Ministry of Communication, which was roads, bridges, and ports, and telecommunication. So these two were separated. And uh, that is the time when I think the best thing which happened to the entire IT industry in Pakistan, that the telecom part of it was deregulated and people were allowed a certain amount of deregulation and they were allowed to sort of compete with PTNT or PTCL and have an alternate to it. And you've seen, as uh, Mr. Khalik said, you've seen this, this burst of, of energy in that sector that we've gone to 160 million. The, the, the fixed line phones never exceeded 4 million. And it was considered you had to be at least a relative of a minister to get a, a phone connection in those days. So we saw that stranglehold and that begin to begun to sort of uh, loosen up uh, 2001, 2002, because some alternatives started coming in. It took about six, seven years for that, that grip to be totally loosened and communication technology being available at an affordable price uh, for people to start using this. And I think since then, um, it has been an excellent enabling environment and people have used or have transformed their, their activities to digital activities fairly effectively. Um, the government has been slow in it uh, because I think the government has an attitude problem uh, over control over information or the sharing of information, which is more of an inhibitor than the enabling environment or the technology or the cost of technology. So 
that started, I think, to some extent, uh, the non-government sector uh, went through major transformation and major digitization uh, in the last 10, 12 years, and that has totally changed here. Um, I think if I get to the second part before I get into talking about my company or what we do, uh, which is in the financial sector, because I think we don't have much time left. Um, the, it, it's the digital divide seems to have reduced or is not that clear, but the financial divide or the financial apartheid, as I would call it, has become even stronger. There's the, the commercial banking sector, and I do not in that include Mr. Farid Khan's institution and many, many such who have done some remarkable work, but I'm talking of the traditional banking sector, just doesn't get it or does not want to get financial inclusion as a concept. It's, it, it seems to be, uh, to be beyond them. Uh, it, is, it, it is not of any interest and they don't have any ability to sort of have any impact in that. But remember, I mean, on the other hand, they have invested heavily in digitalization and uh, people like me or people who are banked in this country, the quality of service we are getting today is uh, dramatically different to what we could get 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I can pay my bills from my online bank and I don't know why Dr. Huck can't do it. I can move money to one account to the other. I can uh, send money to somebody. And I can do it uh, on my phone even. But then I am a bank account holder. What we forget in all of this is that even by the most um, liberal of the, um, the, the measures, that's less than 15% of the population of this country. The remaining still operate in, in a pure cash economy. And uh, fine, I mean, that's an apartheid which we got used to. But more importantly, the micro enterprises, and you've got, I'm told, uh, I stand corrected by the PIED uh, information, but I'm told there are almost 3 million such enterprises, uh, which make up almost 50% of our economy. Um, they are not banked, uh, and they have no such access. And these are, as as Mr. Zohir Khalik said, from the from the Purchun ki dukan or the khoka, which is an essential part of our overall economy. They this undocumented, purely in the cash, and uh, they need to be brought into this. And they have a need for financial services, and they have an express need for financial services. The problem is that there are, there's an attitude by the government which includes, which, which is in, exhibited in their regulatory framework and also in their policy making, which severely inhibits this. Um, let me share with you I am involved in a company, it's, it's one of our subsidiaries, um, which is a fintech. Uh, it's been going on for five years, it's, it's financially sound, it's almost profitable, has processes about uh, three, 400,000 transactions a day, 
does well over um, you know um, exact number i forget but its transactions are worth about a billion and a half rupees a month um, and we had applied for to the state bank of pakistan for an e money license which took years to make the e money regulatory framework took 5 years and finally it was announced last year and it was made and uh, we along with five other organizations were granted the license in uh, february it's been 6 months and we were told as part of the license for us to be able to operate we've got to have uh, an agreement with nadra to be able to have the kyc etc we still don't have an agreement um and whether when we do get the agreement how much nadra is going to charge us um should they be charging us should they be charging for any of the activities now this is a national database this is one of the problems which i would like dr hak to to address is that why does the government charge for every service that they provide to its citizens after they have taxed us to the telecommunication user as mr zohar khalik very rightly said the taxation is huge there is even a tax on uh, getting your sim started there is a tax on 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 you know on you using airtime and it's huge that tax so why then should my kyc be charged also separately why should my my um, checking of my you know my uh, credentials uh, with be charged why should nadra make billions of rupees from the banking sector for what nadra is a is a is a regular part of the government they're performing an excellent role they have a great system and i think that's the backbone of our digitalization system but why should they make money out of it why should the board of revenue if they have uh, digitized the the land record why should they be charging for a shajrayax why can't this be a free service to the citizens it's a question that i would like the you know the economic management of this this country to to answer because all of this adds 